Hey, everybody. This is Karen Stefano, author of the collection The Secret Games of Words. And with me tonight is Jim Ruland, the author of Forest of Fortune. How are you, Jim? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Karen. Uh, it's my pleasure, and um, you're my, my San Diego bud, and you're not even in San Diego right now, are you? No, I'm actually uh, 3,000 miles away in New York City. Um, well, that's, that's awesome for you. Are, you. are you doing any readings on this trip? I can't, I can't remember your schedule. I know that you did a couple in L.A. a few weeks ago. Um, I'm here mostly for some uh, family business, but I did do a reading last Saturday with our mutual friend, Bud Smith. Awesome. Um, yeah, and you read with him in L.A. too, right? Uh, yeah, down in Long Beach, he invited me to read. And while at that reading, we were talking, and I mentioned that I was going to be out in New York. And he was like, oh, well, let me see if I can set something up. And, and did so he? Did. Oh, that's so cool. So you got to read with him twice. Had you, had you met him before? I hadn't. Uh, just through, uh, I forget if it was Twitter or if it was email, but he had read my book and sent me a note that he really liked it. And that's how we became acquainted and uh, um, became a, a very, very quickly became a fan of, of his quirky stories and just, just the <laughs> yeah. way he just... He's just a really charming, affable person uh, when you yeah. meet him as well. Yeah, yeah, he is. I mean, he he's he's such a talented writer, and um, and he's he's freaking funny to hang out with. I mean, just the stories um, that he tells after a couple of beers. So anyway, bud, <laughs> um, if you're listening, we love you. Um, and we think you're awesome. So um, I'm so glad that, that you guys are cultivating a relationship because you guys, you guys are a great, great pair and a great, a great lineup for a reading. Um, but with that, uh, I wanted to, to dive right in, Jim, and ask you some questions about Forest of Fortune. Uh, it's a it's a fantastic book for for those of you who are listening who haven't picked it up yet. I would encourage you to get it. Um, and it's it's a book that's structured to follow uh, multiple characters. Um, there's Alice, there's Pemberton, and then there's Lupita and Denise. And Jim, I'll I'll comment on something that I. Uh, alluded to when I saw you a couple of months ago is that um, Pemberton of all the characters was my personal favorite and um, and I'll share with you again you know my, my opinion that he's he's an adorable character in in that he's so adorably flawed um, he's uh, an adorable class a fuck up and um his, his he's his own worst enemy and um and uh i uh, you know without sharing uh the details of of uh, uh pemberton's traje- tra- trajectory in the book um i i just want to ask you what was the inspiration for pemberton well that's a great question well the the novel is set in an indian casino and it's autobiographical to the extent that I worked in an Indian casino for five years. So um, there's, you know, you have all these different characters. I, I mean, as soon as 
they they have separate identities and separate lives. You have uh, Alice, who's a Native American slot tech who works at the casino, and you've got Lupita, who comes to the casino because she's a gambling addict and she plays the slot machines. And then you've got uh, Pemberton, who uh, works um, upstairs, back of house in the in the marketing office. So he kind of has access to all the departments. And so even though all these characters inhabit the same place, uh, Thunderclap Casino, my fictional casino, uh, they don't interact, but their stories start to slowly converge until um, they, they all um, are forced to confront, their fates become intertwined and they confront one another. So, um, you know, with those different points of view, Pemberton uh, is a Caucasian copywriter working at an Indian casino, and I'm a Caucasian copywriter who's working at an Indian casino. And, um, and I've had my own struggles with uh, that Pemberton shares in the terms of the, in substance abuse. In fact, um, during the middle of my tenure at the casino, I got clean and sober. So it was kind of interesting in the sense that I wrote the, the first draft fairly early on in my after working there after a couple of years, and then I got clean and sober. And then uh, you know, I wanted to take Pemberton on this journey with me, but um, our, our paths kind of forked there where I went one way and Pemberton kind of was doomed to, uh, to be a fuck-up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm I'm glad that your uh, paths uh, forked, and I I, I congratulate <laughs> you in, in not following uh, uh, Pemberton uh, uh, completely. Um, but so so then a, a, a lot of this book, you know, it's it's a it's a novel, it's fiction, um, but it sounds like then a lot of the story is centered around your own life experience. So, for example, there are, there are scenes in Los Angeles, and you lived in Los Angeles. There are scenes in San Diego. Thunderclap is located in San Diego, and you live in San Diego. And um, So tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, you've shared um, about... Uh, Pemberton, but tell tell us more um, about what's in the novel that stems from your own life experience. Oh, sure. Well, um, I was um, dating my wife. Uh, we were doing the long distance thing between San Diego and Los Angeles. So for a couple of years, I was looking for a way to, uh, you know, look for a job that would bring me down to San Diego, you know, something in advertising, which is um, my career, and I found one on Craigslist one day at uh, an Indian casino of all places, and maybe that would put some people off, but I've always been, uh, I grew up around sports and horse racing and things like that, and, and although I'm not um, a, you know, I like to gamble, but I wouldn't call myself a gambler, so it, it was that appeal, and I knew it wouldn't be something that I would that would be a problem for me, at least not that advice. So, so I moved to San Diego and I, you know, got married and I'm still married and all that is, is very happy. But, um, Pemberton leaves Los Angeles in disgrace and I wanted him to, to be, to have this deal where he feels like he's just going to go out to this remote desert casino 
this decrepit, horrible place just for a little while, just till he can get back on his feet and then return to Los Angeles triumphant and get his old life back. Well, it doesn't really work that way. And uh, so that's, that's another way where the two things kind of split. But another thing that was that I drew inspiration from was that I had been working in advertising for, I don't know, over 10 years or so when I moved, when I took this job at the casino. And I, my the people I worked with were all about a decade younger. They were they were younger than me. They were fresh out of school, or they'd worked at the casino for a couple of years, or hadn't really had many, hadn't had a, as long a career in advertising. So um, there I was in my 30s, kind of feeling like uh, you know, avert, like the the senior person in age, and 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 so I played that up a little bit. I was like more, a bit more formal than I usually am you know, for laughs. And a lot of that would kind of work its way into the into the text. And this character that I was writing was this real kind of stuffed shirt, really formal, um, someone who, like, had received the advice that um, when you feel your worst, look your best. So always dressed, dressed in, like, a suit, even though it was, like, a a suit worn by like a shabby piano player in a 1940s movie kind of falling down alcoholic kind of, but, but there was a certain charm to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the book is, is, it's really funny and it's really well drawn and it's, you do a really great job of kind of like the the tragic comedy thing because, um, you're, characters you know they're they're pathetic in so many ways but they're also they're so they're so funny it's like watching a scary movie and like you put your hand over your face and you're just going oh oh alice oh pemberton oh lupita and but then like yeah. you you know you you open your fingers so you can so you can see that that was kind of a lot of that was my experience in reading in reading this this great book so yeah i, I um i mean there's I wouldn't call it a, um, you know, a, a, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, junkie lit and there's a lot of books about alcoholics, or people who have one vice or another. Um, I wouldn't really say it falls into that tradition, but I, I wanted to establish Pemberton early on that he was going to try to live one kind of life, but then everything he did uh, contradicted those ambitions and to find the humor in that wherever, wherever possible. And um, it, it can be funny when uh, when you run into those situations. It's kind of like, uh, just like what you're saying, you kind of watch, like uh, in Goodfellas, the Joe Pesci character. Every time he walks in a room, um, it, it's, it's hilarious, but it's also terrifying because you know someone, you could just explode at any moment. And that's yeah. kind of how Pemberton lives his life. He's just right there on the edge where everything could just fall apart at any second. Yeah, and I and I so felt that because I I felt him. He, Pemberton. He, I mean, he wanted to change. I mean, he wants he wants to change, <laughs> but it's just like he just he he fucks up and he fucks up again. And um, but it's I mean it it made for makes for a great read. So um, so everybody who's listening, you're gonna have to get this book so you can find out what happens to Pemberton and uh, and Alice and Lupita and and Denise too. So. Well, and Karen, I want, the story of yours that I wanted to talk about 
with you this evening. I was curious, uh, the story Undone, which I think is one of the longer stories in the collection. So, um, but it also deals with a, a legal professional, and I know that is your background. So I was curious to know if there were autobiographical elements in that, in the way it's shaped or expressed. Not necessarily uh, the content of the character, but... Yeah. Um, um, as, as, I, as I think you know, um, I, I did criminal defense um, for about eight years of my um, legal career, and so that definitely influenced uh, the young lawyer in this story, and um, and I'll share with you that um, the the prick prosecutor that who appears in this story, um, who you know, who's just so syrupy and Eddie Haskell like, and um, gets away with murder in front of judges and juries, and um, but uh, our our lead character, our narrator, just absolutely can't stand this guy. Um, he's based on a real-life uh, guy who I used to encounter with some regular basis. So, um, so you know, so go figure. Uh, maybe it's some sort of, uh, uh, you know, revenge to put him in the story. But, um, yeah, so there was, there's def- definitely some autobiographical stuff. Um, oh. uh, name, names changed to protect the guilty, of course. Um, of course. And... <laughs> um, uh, thankfully, the the beginning of the story and the ending of the story is is not autobiographical, uh, but I, but I'll share with you like a couple of of snippets. Um, like the road rage incident was inspired by uh, a real life um, parking lot parking space dispute. Oh right. Um, yeah, I mean it's just it's so it's so funny. I mean. Um, and for those of you who who haven't read the collection or, or the story undone, there's our um, narrator is coming home from a really really shit day at work, and um, she's dropping by Safeway to pick up the vodka that she's become a little bit too dependent upon to kind of loosen up at the end of these um, increasingly shitty days, and. She accidentally goes down the wrong uh, the wrong way in in the in the parking lanes, and this woman just screams at her. And that and that happened to me one time. And it was funny because there are plenty of other parking spaces around, but there was just something about me that just angered this woman. And it was just it was just such a violent, unnecessary, hateful incident. And I guess I'm showing everybody how thin-skinned I am that, you know, something happened to me, you know, and a, a lady yelled at me in the parking lot, and I was so upset by it. I <laughs> but um, it's just so, you know, I don't know, th- things like that are just, just so random. Um, and then um, the, the intubation of the father, the dying father, that, um, that, that's, that's true. Um, there oh, was a, wow. Yeah, there was a time where my dad was intubated, and so obviously he couldn't speak, and it was it was such a frustrating experience because you want to communicate so desperately with this person, and right. and you're not able to, and and then 
you know, you think you have this connection so that you would be able to understand their sign language and then you don't. And it's just, it was, it was something for me that was really, really heartbreaking and with a lot of um, heartbreaking incidents in life, I think that we as, as writers um, kind of need to get them out. And so um, that's, so it's wonderful when you have the opportunity to convey that emotion, hopefully in a way that other people can relate to um, on the page. So, so those are kind of the autobiographical bits in, in that story. And if I can just ramble on for another couple of minutes. Yeah, um, um, the structure um, um, is, you know, this character, she... Uh, has she has landed um, uh, in a seventy two hour hold um, and uh, the doc she's taking the minnesota um, uh, multi multiphasic personality inventory the mmpi and um, so that's so that's the kind of unique structure for the story that's how she's telling um now, is that a test that's commonly used in, like, for intake for some kind of mental health facility? You have to take these battery of tests, right? And this is the one that comes up quite a bit? Yeah, and I don't know that it's necessarily used in the context of a 72-hour hold, but it's, um, I was actually a psych major undergrad, and it's a very commonly used tool, and it seems um, to, to to quote Hannibal Lecter, it seems like a blunt little tool, um, but it's actually quite quite effective in um, in, in giving a, a, a mental health professional a, a, a decent idea of what's going what's going on with somebody. Um, and not to overshare here, um, the the, stru- the idea of this structure using these MMPI questions came to me. When in it was either 2007 or 2008, I went to see a therapist, and this therapist just had a policy that he wouldn't start counseling you until you had taken this test. And so I took the test, and I remembered it from my college days, having in, encountered it as a psych major. But I was just I was just, I just fell in love with the questions because it's like you know yeah. um, I, you know I would like to work in a flower shop. It's like yeah, that sounds fucking awesome. I'd love to work in a flower shop. I would like to be a li- librarian. Yes, true. I would love to be a librarian. Just like you know, leave me alone with all those books. Um, and so um, I I relished taking the test, and then I I saw these questions as prompts and. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's how this story came about. And then, of course, it took me a, a long time to kind of figure out how to make it work, you know, because there's always that occasion for telling problem, you know. So, well, so anyway, I, I remember. I, I remember uh, the reason I asked, and I was curious because I remember it triggered a memory reading the story of when I was in, after I had gotten out of the Navy. I was in the Navy Reserves, the inactive reserves. And what that entailed was that I would do like two weeks of training at a naval reserve station um, somewhere near where I was going to school in Southwest Virginia, which is you know 
hundreds of miles from the nearest ocean. And I would spend, you know, two weeks, you know, working in an admin office or supply office. I remember one one summer my job was one year that I went, I always did in the summer because I would go to school in the fall and the spring, is that I had to go and stencil everything, like property of U.S. Navy Reserve Station, whatever it was. Like anything that would hold a stencil, I stenciled it and it became kind of comical. <laughs> But one year I had to fill out part of my paperwork was um, please list any reason why you would not be able to mobilize for combat within less than 48 hours. And and I think like there was a box like, you know, pregnant, incarcerated, uh, caregiver, and then there was other with like three lines or something, and and I thought that was the most preposterous thing. And I remember getting on the type typewriter because I had nothing else to do, and just filling up pages and pages of reasons why I would not be able to mobilize <laughs> for combat in forty eight hours. Because it was the absurd thing, you know. Can you remember? Well, I don't remember. No, I don't remember what it was, but I, you know, I was an undergraduate and a literature major and reading a lot of Jack Kerouac. So you could probably imagine uh, <laughs> the, the flowery, lyrical, beatnik uh, refusal, um, you know, a hybrid of Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac, you know, being typed, pounded away on an electric typewriter in a naval reserve station in Southwest Virginia. That's so funny. Um, yeah, I bet I bet you came up with some some doozies as to why you couldn't be ready in in, in forty eight hours. So um, yeah. So if anyone if anyone wants to use that prompt, go go right ahead. <laughs> I think it's a great prompt. Um, so um, I, I wanted to get back to Forest of Fortune for a second, and um, one of the things that I loved about this book is. The, the pace that you create. Um, and there's just, there's just a couple paragraphs that, that I want to read because um, I can't read too much of it because it's just, it just makes me blush. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Um, and uh, and this, is, this is a section uh, concerning, of course, Pemberton, who I love. Um, and this is early in the book. Um, Ask a shitload of questions. That was Pemberton's strategy for job interviews. Start with questions, end with questions, and cram more questions in between. Only the last time he'd used this approach, it had worked a bit too well. Pemberton had responded to an ad for a freelance editing gig placed by a woman named Tiki. He hadn't done any editing since You Had to Be There, the online humor zine he co-founded in college, which had peaked at 40 discreet visitors per week. Through an exchange of emails, she was able to ascertain that Kiki intended to write a book about her Korean boyfriend, Ricky, who had a super secret story to tell. Crime was involved. Money was no object. Would Pemberton like to meet at a coffee shop to discuss the details? Absolutely, he replied. Um, and I'll, and I'll, I'll stop right there. Um, but how do, you, how do you do that? Jim, um, how do you get that fast pace onto the page, and how do you sustain it? 
Well, that it's funny that you would ask about that scene because it's also one of my favorite scenes because it it was written as a set piece, and uh, I think I wrote that section um, after I thought the novel was done. In fact, I remember it was a note from my agent saying, "You know, we need to know um, pretty early on that Pemberton is capable of." Of really going off the rails, and so we need to see that before he gets to the casino, so that we know that you know he's not just someone who's going to you know dabble in cocaine. That you know that if the bag comes out, it's going to be trouble. And so I needed to kind of show all all of that. So I wrote the scene where uh, that leads to his leaving Los Angeles, basically getting kicked out of his fiance's uh, apartment. And so, um, knowing all that, I had, I had a, a lot of territory to cover. So, um, I, you know, I had to, had to move fast. So, um, maybe it's be part of it is when I was composing it, I was writing it like a set piece. I was writing it like a short story. It wasn't something that didn't have a real, or it didn't feel like I was writing, you know, a chapter in a novel, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's for everyone who's listening who hasn't gotten a book yet. Um, just the, the, what follows um, after the two paragraphs that I read is worth the price of admission. Um, right oh, now, yeah. it, it is so awesome and um, and and funny and and fast paced and you, you know you're just turning the pages and um, it's it's awesome. So and, per, um, and pretty and pretty raunchy too. Yes, um, it is not G-rated. This is not a good bedtime story for your children, for those of you parents who are listening out there. I was going to say, I don't think there's any Jim Rule in writing that's, that's suitable for bedtime stories. Yeah, that's, that story, <laughs> I also want to clarify that that story is not autobiographical. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, only thing I'll say is it comes from it goes all the way back to my uh, the first time I was in um, Ireland and I was reading New Music Express, uh, a British music magazine. And the British music magazines are like way racier and juicier and have way more dirt and gossip than the American. And I read this article about um, the girlfriend of the keyboard player for the band Faith No More, who at the time was Courtney Love, and all the things that she loved to do. And I was I was so shocked that I never forgot that article, and I was like, maybe I'll put that in a story someday. And here it is. Awesome. I love it. Um, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it made, it made for um, some really, really great great reading so um, let me let me shift gears here a little bit and ask you um, about vermin on the mount um, you you run vermin on the mount a, a reading series which is about to celebrate an anniversary um, is it, that, it going to be 12 right. 12 or 11 11 years 11 that's I mean that's a that's a long time in in our literary community today. I mean where there's a lot of there's there's a lot of 
sustainable, great stuff, but then there's also a lot of stuff that pops up and disappears um, pretty pretty quickly. Um, tell me about the series. I know something about it, obviously. I was honored to read um, at, at the San Diego series of Vermin on the Mount in June. Um, and That's right. Yeah, it was a great, it was a, just a great event. But tell me, why did why did you create Vermin on the Mount, and to what do you attribute its longevity and it, and its continued popularity in the LA and San Diego communities? Um, let's see. Well, I started it. I was one of these people. Uh, I guess when I started it in. Um, in 2004, and I had I was doing some events, and I was participating in events and organizing events through uh, Razor Cake, which is the punk rock fanzine uh, that I've been writing for since it started, gosh, almost 20 years ago. But um, friends, some friends of mine from Northern Arizona University, where I got my master's degree, started that magazine up. And I've pretty much been writing for it uh, since it st- since it started, and in the very early uh, aughts. And we were doing these events, and it was, we were getting to the point we were kind of, if you would have a reading, you would there would be a handful of you know twenty five people who may or may not come. You know, it's like the same little crowd of, of punk rockers and. And that was fine. That's what we were doing. You know, we sometimes we'd involve other bands, or it depends on which city we were in. But um, I was start, starting to think of ways to expand it. And uh, so our friend uh, Joe Mino from Chicago was coming to LA, and so uh, Todd Taylor at Razor Cake was like, "Hey, uh, do you want to set something up for for Joe?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'd be happy to, but why don't we like?" use this as an opportunity to invite some other kinds of writers, you know, people outside the punk rock community and to see what happens. And so in April, I had been to uh, this uh, amazing bar in Chinatown called the Mountain Bar and to see Lawrence Wessler, a really fantastic journalist, give a presentation on Easter Sunday of all days. And I was just really smitten by the place, and I got to know the manager. And I approached him about doing an event, and he was like, let's do it. In fact, the manager was one of the owners, so it was really easy. Once he was sold on the idea, um, we got the green light. And then from there, before we, we even did the first one, he wanted to turn it into a series. So I was like, whoa, 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 let's, let's just see how this goes. Yeah. <laughs> and... And as it turns out, it went really well. Um, I know there was, so Joe Mino came out from Chicago, and there was another guy who works in zines named Mike Balloon who came out from New York. Um, Josh Behrman uh, read, and he was, uh, McSweeney, he was a McSweeney's writer at the time, and um, now does a lot of all kinds of fascinating things. Uh, Andrea Siegel, who I think her first novel was about to come out, but I was a big fan of her blog. And um, I think she read emails, and it was just a really interesting event. And the fact that it was just, you know, it was a kind, it had kind of like a punk rock vibe in the sense that I got a tattoo artist to design a poster, and you know, we didn't know if there was going to ever be another one, so it had this kind of feel that, like, you know, 
come see this and or you because you're never going to see this uh, this kind of show again and uh um it was it went really well so i kept doing it and as for why i kept doing it um over the years i think it's just because um i don't like uh maybe like is not the good word but um yeah, I don't like quit. I don't like quitting anything, I, and I don't like uh, you know. And again, it, like and quit are really hard words to use in this community because I know that when you do something all by yourself, whether it's a magazine, a blog, a website, a reading series, a zine, that you know, life can get in the way. You know, you can have unexpected things like you know, babies come along and you can get married and, you know, we, you know, mental illness, addiction, you know, death, you know, real heavy stuff, uh, that can reveal that, oh yeah, you know, doing things for art is, you know, a luxury that we don't always have. So I don't want to say too harsh that like, you know, I wasn't going to be like those other quitters, but I wasn't going to be like those other quitters. So I was going to keep doing it. And plus, you know, it was a reading series. It's not a literary journal. Uh, it's a lot easier. Um, it, it's very rewarding because you bring people together and you get to invite readers that you really uh, respect and admire. Uh, the thing that I learned the most from uh, writing for fanzines and, you know, especially punk rock fanzines is that you don't spend around a lot of time thinking about bands that you don't like. It's all about promoting the stuff that you love and have a passion for. And by writing about it, it gives you access to that. So you get a better understanding of what, what it's all about, what those people are like. And, um, it, it just makes the whole experience more, uh, more fulfilling. Yeah. So that's all, that's always been my approach. Um, I think it would be, a more successful series, whatever that means. If I had like, you know, three interns and people cranking out social media and, but then, you know, it would, I think it would lose something in the sense that, uh, maybe more people would find out about it. Maybe it would be, you know, whatever, but, but then, you know, people who participate might be dealing with somebody who, uh, you know, didn't, doesn't want to do it that day or, I, I don't yeah. know. I just maybe I have some control issues, but um, <laughs> I just I just I guess I just see it as an expensive hobby, not as uh, not as like a something that I'm supposed to be really good at and maximize or any of those kinds of things. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And like, yeah, and if you did hire, um, you know, three interns and uh, uh, you know, tweet it all day long and. Um, and uh, tried to make it a franchise across the country and have other people run it and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it would, I think it would lose a lot of its... It would lose its authenticity. And I think, to me at least, um, you know, as someone who's observed it and then now recently participated as a reader, um, it... it um, you know, it's a, very, it's a very real and authentic experience. And so... Um, you know, you don't want to lose that. Yeah. So, you know. So that's, that said, though, I am investigating some ways of trying to make uh, the experience more 
beneficial for the people who participate. Um, I I had like the great like right after I got sober, um, I was. I'm not really sure how it happens. I think somebody I was given a recommendation or something, but I was uh, invited to participate in, uh, or I was nominated for a scholarship at Redlow. And I had a feeling that it would either be the worst thing or the best thing I could do to go like within the first three months of sobriety. But I did, and I went. And I'm really just amazed by the extent to which. Uh, it was just such a solid reminder of like the role community plays in, in art and how essential it is and how I'm still in touch with so many of the people that I met for, you know, a week and a half or whatever it is that I I was out there. And I'm sure anyone who's gone through an MFA or been on a, a writing residency or something has had a similar experience where, you just get to bond with people who care about the things things you do. And now a reading series is not a residency, but I, I am investigating ways to, to bring the Legion of Vermin uh, into closer contact so they can be in touch and share resources and frustrations and, and things like that. So I'm looking at that. And, and also at some point I'm investigating some kind of uh, something in the category of an anthology, but it's not going to be an anthology. And also we are, uh, Vermin is going to be teaming up. Uh, I think you're going to see more of a closer relationship with Razorcake uh, in the coming years uh, as we join forces and uh the literary wing of uh, Razorcake is, is Gorski, and I think you're going to see uh, Vermin and Gorski doing a, a lot more things together um, in the coming months. Well, excellent. Well, we'll we'll look forward to to all of that. And um, we're just about out of time here. Um, oh wow. Yeah, I know. I told you it goes it goes by really, really uh, quickly. But just before I, we close, I didn't believe you. Yeah, I know. You're like, oh my god. Um, but you're just saying that. <laughs> uh, no, it's totally pain free. I told you. Um, um, but um, be- but before we sign off, I just really want to thank you for joining me, Jim. Um, you're you're fantastic. For everybody who's listening, um, get your copy of Forest of Fortune. You will not regret it. And um, uh, for the the SoCal people who are listening, um, check the Vermin on the Mount site and um, make sure that you come out for the next reading. Um, when's the when's the anniversary edition in San Diego? It's in August, right? Yes, it's going to be August 22nd. Okay, awesome. Okay, so San Diego, L.A. people, um, August 22nd, Vermin on the Mount. And with that, I'll say good night, Jim, and say hello to New York for me. I will. Um, good night to you too, Karen. I'll be actually getting on a plane tomorrow, so I will see you in San Diego soon. Okay, cool. Good night.